Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute here, and it's my honor to preside over our event today. This week, as you know, we're celebrating the 300th birthday of Benjamin Franklin, though it seems to me we're not celebrating enough. I've been looking in the papers and saying, where's the style section profile in the Washington Post? Where's the White House ceremony? Nevertheless, there are a number of books being published this season about Benjamin Franklin, and there have been some newspaper articles. Uh, in the Washington Post article that some of you may have seen that quoted uh, Mark Skousen, the Associated Press reminds us that Benjamin Franklin was, quote, a businessman, inventor, revolutionary, athlete. Franklin is a member of the United States Swim School Association Hall of Fame. Diplomat, publisher, humorist, sage, man of destiny, and regular guy. In the New York Times, one of Franklin's biographers, Stacy Schiff, points out that Franklin signed every document central to America's founding. She also notes, the most read writer in colonial America, Franklin found that only the Bible outsold his almanacs. The former, he reasoned, you bought once. The latter had to be purchased annually. And it's that sense of business that may point to one of the reasons he doesn't get as much respect as he might. The distinguished historian Gordon Wood told the Associated Press, for a long time most intellectuals saw him as a spokesman for capitalism and for making money and getting ahead, a view of America many have had. And of course that's just what intellectuals didn't like about both Franklin and the country he helped to invent. Well, our speaker today, Mark Skousen, likes capitalism and America and Benjamin Franklin. As many of you know, Mark is an economist, an investment advisor, and a prolific author. He writes a newsletter, Forecasts and Strategies. He has served as president of the Foundation for Economic Education and taught economics at the Columbia Business School. His previous books include Economics on Trial, The Making of Modern Economics, and Vienna and Chicago, Friends or Foes. He is also, he tells me, an eighth-generation descendant of Benjamin Franklin, which explains his interest in today's topic. Franklin's autobiography is one of the great American books, read by many a schoolboy and girl over the years. But unfortunately, the autobiography stops in 1757, on the eve of Franklin's great achievements in statesmanship. So today, Mark will tell us how he completed Benjamin Franklin's autobiography by adding materials that Franklin wrote over the course of his life about his experiences in his personal life, his public life, and so on. Uh, Mark uh, will discuss the book, then we'll take some questions, and it'll be available for signing afterward. And Mark wanted me to let you know that if you buy it here today, in addition to the book, you will get an authentic, antique American stamp with Benjamin Franklin's picture on it. Um, so please welcome the compiler and editor of the completed autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, Mark Skousen. David, thank you very much. I should tell you that uh, when uh, uh, that Franklin made an interesting statement about individuals who boast of uh, of a famous ancestor, he said, "He that boasts of a famous ancestor doth but advertise his own insignificance." <laughs> so, uh, 
I'm a little bit concerned about that, so maybe I won't play up that, uh, that role too much. Uh, I would like to make a contribution in economics and finance, and I do write an investment newsletter, uh, so I'm following in the footsteps to some extent of, uh, of Franklin. Uh, I, I wanted to first uh, talk about uh, why I wrote this book. Uh, I think it's an important thing that you, you see what I've tried to do here because it's probably the most uh, uh, exciting project I've been involved in as far as writing is concerned. Um, and as David said, uh, the autobiography, which I have a copy of here, this is the Yale University Press copy, um, uh, was was uh, was very incomplete. I mean, every autobiography, to some extent, is incomplete. Very few uh, write the the last words of an autobiography and, and then die the next day. So there's always a period of time where they haven't written about it. But in Franklin's case, it's egregious. It's 33 years. Uh, the the first 51 years is what he covers in the in the original autobiography. And it's really Franklin, the local citizen, uh, a successful businessman, an inventor, and a civic-minded uh, individual. And then he heads to England as the colonial agent for uh, Pennsylvania and later several other um, colonies. And that's where he becomes a national and international figure. That's what makes him famous. And if it wasn't for all of that, we probably wouldn't be reading the original autobiography. So it's kind of ironic in that sense. Well, as I read this, and as many of you have read the, uh, the autobiography, um, you're, you're naturally disappointed that he doesn't talk about the Declaration of Independence and how that uh, transpired, how he became a revolutionary, because up to that point he's defending uh, the British Empire, uh, he considers himself a British citizen or a British subject. Um, and it doesn't discuss uh, his, his critical role of nine years as, um, as ambassador to France. And it doesn't discuss the Constitutional Convention where he played a critical role in uh, getting everybody together and to compromise and come up with the Constitution. So, uh, so that's part one. Part two is... Uh, Several, oh, I'd say 20 years ago, I started collecting the papers of Benjamin Franklin. And uh, these are all the papers, uh, letters, uh, letters both from Franklin and to Franklin, uh, his journal entries. He kept a journal from time to time, and his major papers and essays and so forth, all compiled at Yale University. And they've done 37 volumes. Well, as I was just kind of selectively going through uh, these uh, uh, volumes, I made a great discovery that Franklin had basically uh, completed his autobiography in his own words uh, with a few exceptions of, of some events that, that he didn't write about for whatever reason, such as his meeting with Voltaire uh, in uh, around 1785. But... Overall, he had basically written his, uh, he had completed his autobiography. The problem was that in 1790 when he died, he was, <clears throat> he was so busy with public uh, affairs and he was in such excruciating pain, primarily from a kidney stone, that he just ran out of time. And it was one of his great regrets that he never finished it. 
And the other thing that's interesting is that what was his modus operandi? Well, basically, Franklin said, I want to, uh, I need to rely on my papers in Philadelphia to write my, uh, my autobiography. So he was relying on that. And so I decided, well, let me take an attempt at putting this together and using his same uh, uh, systematic approach. We have his papers. We have his letters. Uh, they're very autobiographical. Let's see if it can be done. And I was delighted, and my publisher was delighted, uh, delighted that I was, I was actually able to, to put, this, uh, put this together. Now, I will tell you that I came up against a couple of stumbling blocks. One was, and this is why I brought this one, this is the one that covers 1776. And it looks very thick. It's like six or 700 pages. So you would think in six or 700 pages that Franklin would say something about the Declaration of Independence. Well, guess what? There's nothing in there. He doesn't talk about it. One of the reasons he didn't talk about it is because these were secret sessions. And he always made a point of, I won't discuss this. It's a secret. So you can imagine my trying to put together the completed autobiography, and you have nothing to say about the most singular event in the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence. So how was I going to deal with this issue? Well, first of all, Jefferson wrote a letter to Franklin saying, Dr. Franklin, could you please peruse this draft of, a, of the Declaration of Independence that I have written and uh, make a few changes? And uh, so it was merely a fairly easy thing to do to, to use the, a similar language for Franklin saying, Jefferson came to me and asked me to peruse the, this draft of the Declaration of Independence, and I made a few changes. We also have the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, and we have a clear area where Franklin made a significant change. What was that change? He made a one-word change in the Declaration of Independence that all of you are familiar with. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, is what Jefferson wrote. Franklin in his left hand, and by the way, that's about the only thing I've inherited from Franklin, his left-handedness, he marked very boldly, scratched out sacred and undeniable, and wrote in self-evident. And why did he do this? Well, nobody knows, but we think it's because as a child of the Enlightenment, he, uh, he praised uh, uh, rational science over faith and revelation. One of the things I discovered in completing the Franklin's autobiography has became deeply religious at the end of his life. And this is something that most historians fail to recognize. And uh, this is particularly evident in his speech to the Constitutional Convention, where he begs the, uh, the delegates that we should open session with prayer. And he says, uh, the longer I live, the more I know that God governs in the affairs of men. And have we not seen occasion after occasion where Providence has intervened on our behalf for us to win the war? And uh, they didn't adopt his resolution, but nevertheless, uh, it's an indication that he went from being a deist uh, to being a theist, uh, a believer that God was active in, in our affairs. So I am under, I, w I would think that Franklin, if he could relive his life, would have kept the original language. Frankly, I think Jefferson's language is better. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. I think it's much more powerful than self-evident. But you may disagree with me on that. Well, anyway, the other thing that Franklin didn't uh, talk about was uh, 
this, this period of time, he was so busy in 1776 that he, he didn't get a chance to write about how he felt about it until two years later. In 1778, he was sitting down with Arthur Lee one evening, and Arthur Lee was one of the commissioners in France with him. And he said that one evening he and uh, Dr. Franklin uh, sat around and reminisced for two hours on what had transpired during 1776. And Franklin says it was a miracle in human affairs that here was a country that had no national laws, no military, no money, and fighting the uh, greatest military force in history. And so it was a miracle that they were able to put together laws and military and money and, 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 and do all these things and uh, have some success in winning this. So all of this I have uh, included in Chapter 4, and all I did was say change it from Dr. Franklin said to I said. Everything else is clearly in the, the tone of voice that Franklin might have. The rest of the book is pretty much completely... Uh, um, uh, original source material, it is in Franklin's words. I didn't want to write an historical novel. I wanted this to be in Franklin's own words. And you know, yeah, you can pick up anthologies of Franklin. You can, uh, lots of uh, books uh, have been, you know, Walter Isaacson has a book, uh, an anthology called The Franklin Reader. But it just jumps around. There's no cohesion. You know, there's a letter here and a letter there. You, you don't get the feeling of a story. And I, I have to give credit to my wife, Joanne, who is, is really the co-editor of, of this book because she was the one who really made it seamless. And uh, the reviews that I've received from radio interviews and, and on Amazon.com, if you look at some of the reviews that are just starting to come out, I'm very pleased to see that people have, have sensed that this is a story and it's all in Franklin's words. Now... Today, um, I am talking on the subject of uh, Ben Franklin. Uh, is he a conservative? Is he a libertarian? Or is he a radical Democrat? That's my basic theme. There's lots of uh, different facets of Franklin's life, but I want to focus politically uh, on his political philosophy uh, in this uh, presentation. So what can we say about him? Well, first of all, Franklin would have disliked very much being labeled. He did not like uh, political parties at all. When he met at the Constitutional Convention, as far as he was concerned, you were simply delegates from various colonies or states, the 13 states. You weren't Republicans, you weren't Democrats, you weren't Whigs, uh, you weren't Federalists and Anti-Federalists. That kind of came out after the Constitution was, was put together. So Franklin really d had a great disdain for party politics. So uh, debates about whether he's Republican or Democrat, I, I think, are, uh, uh, are, are going to really miss the, miss the point. Now, one of the things about Franklin that I really like is that uh, he was an incurable optimist. He had a gift for prophecy, and he was very accurate he, uh, throughout, you'll discover in the completed autobiography that, that Franklin knew from the very beginning, he wrote letters saying, we are going to win this war. And this was at a time when a lot of people had doubts about that. And second of all, once the war was won, Franklin was very upbeat about the future of America. He said, this will be a great and mighty country. Uh, 
And so he, in many ways, was the father of American capitalism and America's growth machine with his focus on industry, thrift, and prudence, and economy, frugality, uh, these kind of principles, he believed, that apply not only for individuals, but for companies, business, as well as government. So there are many examples of where he would apply his business principles uh, to, to, to government. Now, although not a, a churchgoer, Franklin supported a very practical religion. And this is a very important point, I think, regarding some of the debates that you see today. He favored good works and charity over simple faith and hope. Franklin was famous for engaging in innumerable civic and charitable causes throughout his adult life. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of times government and uh, uh, the UN and so on, they all, they all talk about private-public cooperation, private-public cooperation. And that's kind of Franklin's approach to government. There was one occasion where he uh, went to the government and said, uh, to the government of Pennsylvania and said, we'd like to start our first hospital. Can you give us 2,000 pounds for this purpose? Of course, they said no. Then he said, he came back to them and said, well, what if I raise 2,000 pounds from the public, from the private sector in a sense, uh, would you match it? And you see, then the government uh, delegates, they went for that. And the reason they went for that was to say, well, that suggests there's a public support for this project. Uh, and, and so if you can raise the 2,000 pounds uh, from private citizens, then we'll match it. And he did that, and he did it very quickly. Uh, Franklin was a uh, fundraiser uh, par excellence. I don't think there's ever been a better fundraiser than, uh, than Ben Franklin. So David Bowes, if you were alive today, that's the guy you need to use, although you've been pretty successful uh, as it is. But all of us are uh, in, in, uh, in, in this arena of, of think tanks and, and uh, uh, tax-exempt organizations are always looking for fundraising. Let me give you the best example of this is Franklin during his time as, a, um, as ambassador to France. Basically, they had five commissioners that they appointed over the nine-year period. And only one of them could truly live up to the term diplomat, being diplomatic. And that was Franklin. Franklin was beloved by the French people, and he loved the French people. But that was not true of any of the other commissioners. I don't know what Congress was thinking, sending John Adams, who's obnoxious and disliked, as the saying, as uh, 1776, the musical, uh, points out. Uh, same thing with the Lee brothers. Uh, Arthur Lee was, and William Lee, like Richard Henry Lee, were all very cantankerous, critical individuals who hated the French, don't know why they were there. Franklin loved France, and um, he raised some estimate a billion dollars in financial and military aid. And without that, the French, without the French support, uh, America could not have won this war. Uh, when Cor Cornwallis looked out at Yorktown and saw all the French ships and the French troops, and the majority of troops were French, he capitulated. 
And that simply would not have happened without French support. And just as one example to show you how great uh, Franklin was and why I think he's the co-father of this nation, Washington won the war at home, but Franklin won the war abroad. And just to give you an example of how good he was, there was one time where Congress, after several years of already giving uh, millions and millions of livre, of uh, the currency at the time, to the American cause, Again, Congress went back, well, we've run out of money again. Please, I beg of you, Dr. Franklin, go back to uh, the king, go back to Vergen, the foreign minister, and ask for another 25 million livres. So reluctantly, Franklin goes back and very colorful phrase, phraseology writes the king uh, and a king of France and through Vergen asks for 25 million. A couple weeks later, Vergen comes back, his head down, he says, I'm sorry to report, Dr. Franklin, that we're broke. And not only are we broke, but you're broke. And your credit is not worth anything. Why bother loaning you any money at all? And then he pauses, and then Vergen says, however, because you are so beloved by the King of France, he has decided to give you, not loan you, but give you six million livres. Now, I don't know, for any of you who have had fundraising experience, to be able to do that to an individual who is broke and still giving you money is truly remarkable. And we have really underestimated Franklin's role in the American Revolution. And uh, I, I think it's really, really critical. Now, on the dark side, Franklin was an opportunist. No question about that. He constantly sought government privilege. Uh, for him and his relatives, nepotism was very common uh, among Franklin and others. He printed currency, uh, the banknotes for several states, which he called a very profitable job. In 1753, he landed a lucrative position as postmaster of North America. He got his son, William, appointed royal governor of New Jersey. And he sought a land grant from Ohio for many years, finally denied. So only after the American Revolution did Franklin finally decide that corporate welfareism wasn't for him. And uh, he said, I am of the opinion that almost any profession a man has been educated in is preferable to an office held at pleasure, that is, in the public. And the rift between father and son as a result of this is one reason Franklin often said there never was a good war or a bad peace. Now, we, most of us who look at that statement realize that it may be the, the former may be true, but the latter is definitely not true, uh, because there can be many examples of a bad peace. Uh, but anyway, the war destroyed forever his relationship with his son William, and a lot of uh, historians have criticized Franklin for not reconciling with his son. But imagine this, if you had appointed your son to be royal governor of New Jersey, and then that government uh, turns against you, uh, uh, brutalizes your, uh, all your friends and citizens and so forth, and you're simply to turn the other cheek and forgive him uh, when he himself says, if I had to do it over again, I would do the same thing. Now, I think Franklin is somewhat justified in, in that attitude. War to Franklin was a necessary evil. Uh, uh, but uh, the other thing that he didn't like war is because um, 
he was not able to pursue his practical inventions and scientific pursuits. Uh, what were Franklin's politics? First of all, he was no social libertarian, and this kind of surprises a lot of people considering what we know about Franklin, uh, his, uh, uh, his lifestyle with uh, the French ladies in Paris, his uh, frequenting the salacious Hellfire Club in London, his reading of books in the nude. Um, but uh, one of the things I discovered in completing the autobiography is that he wrote stern letters to his daughter Sally, uh, chastising her for wanting to wear the la latest fashions during the war. He refused to buy his grandson, a, uh, Benny, a gold watch while in France. He dressed plainly and constantly preached economy. And one of, the, one of the things I discovered is you read this wonderful language about um, Franklin criticizing uh, the growth of taverns in Philadelphia upon his return in England. Now, that's not a kind of a libertarian view, I would think. The other thing, he hated mobs, mobs of all kinds. He, uh, he criticizes the, this, uh, all this uh, uh, rabble-rouser about John Wilkes. And, you know, he's usually a libertarian hero, John Wilkes, but uh, he really disliked all of that that was going on at the time. Um, also, he was a radical Democrat. Uh, he supported a unicameral legislature. He, um, he, he was a true Democrat. He believed one man, one vote, one man, one woman, one black. You know, he, he, he had no uh, problem with, uh, with uh, everyone voting. Um, and this was at a time when democracy had uh, real negative connotations because democracy back then meant the rule of the mob uh, and, and the rule of the common man, and the co common man is ignorant. Uh, so Franklin was, uh, was very much a Democrat in that respect, but he was also a diplomat, and so he compromised. He suggested the compromise, one of several, at the Constitutional Convention to bring together the, the Senate, represented by the states, and the House of Representatives by, uh, by, by population. But if he had his druthers, it would have been just a House of Representatives, unicameral legislature, and it would be based uh, representation based solely on population. Uh, he makes a very interesting statement that sounds very libertarian, however, politically. A virtuous and, and uh, industrious people may be cheaply governed. So if you ask yourself, are we cheaply governed today? And most people, and, I, and I've asked a lot of people across the political center, Republicans or Democrats, are we cheaply governed? And every one of them says, no, we're expensively governed. So that, that brings it back on us as a people, though, how virtuous and how industrious are we? He was a disciple of Adam Smith and free trade. He was enamored with laissez-faire policies. He speaks out eloquently uh, in favor of laissez-faire, let us alone. And not. And what should the government policy be? Not to govern strictly, he said. Uh, he has this wonderful uh, article that he wrote for a London paper defending the rich. He said, who wrote the poor laws, the welfare system of the time? Well, it wasn't the poor people, it was rich people. And then he lists all the things that rich people have done for, for the poor. It's a really delightful uh, article that is in the completed autobiography. Um, he worries about the incentives for the poor and how they'd be affected uh, by a welfare system. He opposed a minimum wage law that was being discussed at that time. 
He wrote in favor of free immigration and fast population growth. He was no Malthusian. Uh, He rejected any form of state religion or mandatory religious oaths of office. Uh, However, as I pointed out, he would advocate, this is where he would disagree with the ACLU today, I would presume, uh, he was very much in favor of having prayers in public places, uh, as long as it didn't favor one religion over another. Um, He was no free-thinking anarchist in economics. This is one area in economics I think you'll find interesting. He favored paper money in a time when many of the founding fathers were very much opposed to paper money. He supported, he was a, uh, he, he owned 10 shares in the Bank of North America, and uh, he seemed to be quite favorable toward the Hamiltonian plan of a national bank. His likeness on the $100 bill of an irredeemable American papal currency would please his vanity, especially being 100 times worth more than Washington. Although he, he, he never said anything negative about Washington, about the only criticism he had of, um, of any of the founding fathers was John Adams, and uh, their rift was, was uh, pretty well known. Uh, which, again, is one reason why he hated war so much, because he used to be friends with John Adams. Uh, He argued in favor of free education for youth, uh, and he believed government should play a role in dispelling uh, public fads and superstitions. So, again, that sounds more conservative than libertarian. And here's the other thing that libertarians would have a hard time with, the Lockean trilogy of life, liberty, and property. Uh, Franklin, there's several uh, uh, statements that Franklin makes in the completed autobiography where uh, he, uh, he joins Jefferson in the theme of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, leaving out the third trilogy of property. And in fact, Franklin writes at one point that property is the creature of society and can be legitimately taxed for civil society. And he says he's quite critical of Americans unwilling to pay their fair share of what he calls society's dues. Um, Finally, Franklin would be critical of business. He would probably be critical of Milton Friedman's view of of, uh, uh, business should only be in the uh, focusing on on making a profits rather than being uh, very civically minded. and Franklin, of course, was very much an advocate that business should be involved. And he, of course, helped establish insurance company, uh, Philadelphia's own hospital, library, and militia. Uh, what kind of epitaph would Franklin have on his grave, gravestone? Well, he toyed with several ideas in his lifetime. But the one that uh, I think he would be most proud of is the one where he said, I'd rather it be known he lived usefully rather than he died rich. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, We'll open it up to questions now. Raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone around to you. And Mark, I think you can just stay there at the podium and call on questioners. In the back there. Uh, 
which Franklin should we take as our role model? Early to bed, early to rise? Or living in France, very late to bed, very late to rise, and living dissolutely? <clears throat> well, it sounds like you've re read the completed autobiography. Uh, because one of the things that I discovered, and, it's, and, and, and I put it in the completed autobiography, is that uh, Franklin changed in many ways uh, in the last part of his, uh, his life. He not only changed his religious views from being a deist to a theist, but he, he kind of rejected out of hand the early to bed, early to rise uh, mentality. Um, and uh, in fact, that, that whole essay that he writes uh, about daylight savings time, which is all tongue in cheek, by the way, him, him being the father of daylight savings time is a little bit suspect. He did suggest it, but it was all in, uh, uh, it was purely a satire uh, on the uh, French people who didn't know that the sun gets up, it rises at six in the morning. Uh, and so he, he, he really pokes fun of the of French people for, ri for staying late into the night partying. And Franklin was very much a part of that. And uh, then waking up uh, around noontime. And uh, this is one thing the commissioners, John Adams was furious about this. Uh, uh, Adams, uh, very uh, puritanical, he and his wife coming over, Abigail, and, and they attend one of these uh, 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 parties that Franklin's at. And, and they're just totally... Uh, disgusted with Franklin and, and the French women sitting on his lap and kissing him and, and uh, uh, engaging in the most salacious activities. Um, they, uh, they had a hard time figuring that out. And, and, of course, they complained about Franklin getting up very late and his books were uh, in disarray. The finances were in disarray. But, you know, understand, here's a man who's now in his 70s. Um, I did discover uh, along those lines another interesting thing, and there are several evidences of that in, in the completed autobiography, is that uh, he did have a, a very strong libido. It was still very much uh, there in the 70s. So uh, you, you'll have to read between the lines and some of the uh, statements that Franklin makes there. What was, uh, yeah, I can just repeat the question. What was the biggest surprise in completing this work? Well, I actually wrote uh, a list of about seven surprises. Uh, and I think the biggest surprise from my point of view was uh, the, this critical role that, that Franklin play, played in raising the money for the American cause. And the fact that all these other commissioners had, that had been selected were um, just weren't diplomatic, and uh, they, you know, John Adams was was sent to Holland, and then after the war, w in England as a diplomat, and that fit him a lot better than the the French. You know, he tried to learn French, but he, he had a very difficult time, both he and his wife, as far as that's concerned. And I just don't believe the money could have been raised. And the other thing I I discovered was in that regard. Franklin was the one responsible for bankrupting the, the French government. And, I mean, if you raise what are estimated to be close to a billion dollars, or multi-millions, and where the French were running out of money, they had a scarcity of money that they were talking about, they had a banking crisis, one major French bank failed. This, in a sense, is what brought on the French Revolution.
And the French failed miserably in following Frank. In the book, you'll see in some of the later chapters Franklin's own view of how do you finance a war? And he was really angry with Congress that they they wouldn't issue uh, uh, interest-bearing uh, banknotes, um, which was very uh, common back then, but uh, Congress didn't want to do it. And he said, and not only that, but you should make the interest be paid in gold and silver. So he's a bit of a, a, a hard money man in that respect. Um, but uh, that his role in a positive way of helping, uh, really uh, financing the American war effort. That is a real uh, uh, underappreciated aspect of Franklin. And, and nobody at, his, at their time appreciated Franklin in that regard. In fact, when Franklin died, uh, the, the Senate, which was under the control of the Lees and John Adams, uh, didn't even do a eulogy for Franklin. They waited a year later and then William Smith, an enemy, got up and gave the eulogy. And here's what he said in his eulogy. He said, all of you well know Dr. Franklin's accomplishments, so why bother telling you? That's how he started his eulogy. So that was, that was a pretty major, uh, major discovery. I, sh I should also mention, thinking of uh, this area of, of inflation, Franklin has this wonderful language about how wonderful hyperinflation can be, even though he's against it. Uh, he talks about how it financed the war, and we had no credit whatsoever, but, but Europeans were dumb enough to buy our paper. It's, it's wonderful language about the, the case for hyperinflation, if you, if you want to read that. Yes. Let's do Margie first. Ladies first. Um, Mark, I've heard the debate over the national symbol for the new country of the United States. And I remember hearing that there was a big debate over whether it, the bird should be the eagle or the turkey, I think Franklin was, was said to advocate. But I, I think in your completed autobiography, there was a story of another animal that he was advocating as a symbol yeah. that I thought might be fun to tell. Yeah, um, you're right. Most of you know, if you've seen the musical 1776, you know where Franklin talks about uh, how he has great disdain for the eagle uh, as a uh, symbol because he's a predator and uh, it's not an appropriate symbol for, for a country that should be uh, peaceful. And, and that reminds me, by the way, of another great quote. There are two great quotes that come out of uh, the completed autobiography that I've never seen anywhere else that I discovered in doing this work. One is a virtuous and industrious people may be cheaply governed, which everybody nods their head on. But let me give you the second one. See if you all nod your head on this one. The policy of America is to have commerce with all and war with none. Much more controversial, but a few, a few applaud in the, in the audience here. David, I would think you would applaud to that. I applaud it, and I note that uh, Washington and Jefferson said virtually the same thing. Yes, it, that's right. In fact, in Washington's farewell address, uh, a lot of times we, we focus just on the foreign entangling alliances and that sort of thing of Washington's farewell address. But read the next paragraph where he says, but what America should do on a positive basis is increase commercial relations with each country. And Franklin said this, I think, better 18 years before Washington did. The policy of America is commerce with all and war with none. But getting back to Margie's question, 
there's this anonymous piece that Franklin wrote for a Philadelphia newspaper. We didn't know for many years whether it was authored by Franklin or not, but now most historians agree that it was. And that is the rattlesnake should be the symbol of, uh, of America uh, because uh, it doesn't strike you unless you strike it. So, uh, and, and at the time he was looking at this rattlesnake, it had... Uh, uh, 13 rattles on it. He counted them. He said, oh, there's 13 rattles. This is definitely the symbol for America. Uh, and, and it won't be bothered unless you bother it. So that was, that was pretty, good, uh, pretty good symbolism, I think. Yes, and in the back there, yeah. Um, how late was he in England up to 1775? And when did this famous bear bait, this thing where he was assaulted... In, in the cockpit? In the cockpit occur. Yeah. Because I, I've gotten the idea that that was the thing that made him become a supporter of American independence. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought this up because I noticed there was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently, uh, or just a couple of days ago during uh, uh, on Franklin's 300th birthday, uh, which has said that Franklin came late into the game in advocating uh, – uh, uh, separation. And the f w this is another discovery that I made in the completed autobiography. Franklin wrote as early as 1771, and I believe that is earlier than many of the other founding fathers, in 1771 saying, we have sown the seeds of disunion and it cannot be put back together. And yet he always was hopeful that we could be part, uh, maintain this uh, uh, part of the British Empire. Uh, the, the cockpit event where uh, in the Hutchinson letters uh, controversy, and I don't want to get into all the particulars of it, but uh, Franklin was in the cockpit, uh, which is a, a place in, in London where uh, in, in Henry VIII's time they, they had uh, a cockpit for, for uh, uh, fighting of uh, bird fighting um, and, uh, or cockfighting. Uh, so uh, it was in this place that uh, for over an hour Franklin stood in front of the House of Lords and was viciously, personally attacked uh, by, uh, by the, uh, the top British brass. And uh, this, this is what was, uh, he was uh, threatened with arrest. And um, it was at this point that Franklin realized that everything has been severed and so he made his um, plans to leave. It, didn't, it took him another uh, year or so before he left. He left in early 1775, and when he arrived, he, he had found out about uh, Lexington and Concord, the, the shot heard around the world, and the, and the war, war was on. So he arrived just back in time. And you look at Franklin's life, and it's just remarkable how he was always there uh, for the signing of all these uh, documents, uh, and uh, the only document he didn't sign, but he wrote the original draft for, was the Articles of Confederation. Another question. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I've uh, read that Franklin had something in the order of 20 children outside of marriage. Uh, did you find any evidence of this? Okay, uh, regarding uh, Franklin and, uh, and women, um, 
First of all, uh, I have found over the years probably more uh, false accusations about Franklin than any other. Um, and uh, Franklin, as far as we know, had only one illegitimate child, and that's William. Uh, however, William had an illegitimate child named Temple. Temple had an illegitimate child, and we don't even know that. I, I'm, well, maybe there's a name. I don't, I don't know who the name is. So there's this kind of tradition of promiscuity in his family, and that has caused all these rumors to go around about Franklin siring many illegitimate children. I should tell you that my own direct ancestry is through Louis Bache, Louis Bache, a uh, grandson of, uh, of Franklin. Uh, my direct relationship to them is also through an illegitimate uh, son. He had two, uh, two illegitimate children. So, um, so this is the basis of the rumor. Uh, Frank, um, Jefferson said that when Franklin was around women, he went into a frenzy. And uh, interesting term that he would use. Uh, but Franklin was also loved by, uh, he was, he was, he was the only founding father that I can that I am aware of the of the major founding fathers, who was very approachable, very nice guy. Whether women or men, he just socially he just got along with everyone. He was not a very good public speaker, by the way. He hated to give public speeches, but privately behind the scenes, he would tell a story. He would have a glass of wine, a Madeira wine, or what have you. Um, I, I understand you have Madeira wine today in honor of Franklin. Is this correct for uh, at the luncheon? I'm, I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> it well, probably would have been a good idea. Well, ben, ben would be very disappointed. If <laughs> so anyway, that's really the story with Franklin. But uh, the other the other thing that I think is uh, a, a often a misconception is that he treated his wife badly. And a lot of the historians have made this accusation. Uh, it is true that Franklin and his wife were separated for the last, oh, 15 years of their lives. And it was because uh, uh, Franklin was in England as colonial agent and his wife was over in Philadelphia. But as much as Franklin coaxed his wife to come with him, she adamantly refused to go across the oceans. She was just really adverse to that, just as some people don't want to get on an airplane today. And uh, so their relationship, while their letters are very affectionate toward each other, they became fewer and their relationship definitely uh, uh, drew apart. But I don't really blame either one on this. Uh, he does have numerous letters, as you will see in the completed autobiography, of Franklin's uh, love for his children and grandchildren. I mean, he was so despondent over his son William uh, uh, not joining him on that cause. But he, he died a very happy man. He repeatedly refers to the love he has for his, his grandchildren. Uh, who are, He has a whole flock of grandchildren around him at the time of his death. So uh, I, I, I don't think it's fair to accuse him of being, being the lecher and that sort of thing that you often hear about. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, Franklin's criticism of the number of taverns, and I know the, uh, the Cato Institute has been very critical of the prohibitionist approach to drug policy. I'm wondering if he ever addressed this, or can you infer from his writings what he would have thought about the proper government approach to personal use of recreational drugs? 
Okay, now this a question like this, you, you only have indirect evidence. Uh, there's the conservative side where he was rather critical of Tavern. He, uh, he, in Poor Richard's Almanac, uh, there are a number of statements, uh, drink not to elevation. Uh, uh, and, and he, he was critical of people who got drunk. There's, in the autobiography, there's the story of when he's over in London at a time when the uh, common workman that he worked with at, at the print shop there in London uh, said, well, strong beer makes you strong. The more you drink during work, the better off you are. And Franklin saw uh, the stupidity of that, made it known to all of them, and, and, and drank water. <clears throat> As to whether someone would have the freedom, personal freedom or not, to use these things, it is interesting that Franklin, in the last uh, year of his life, did take opium. And uh, you'll see that in the book where he says, I took opium uh, because I was in excruciating pain from the, uh, from the stone, the kidney stone. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was the, the painkiller of, uh, of the day. Uh, and, you know, this is at a time where there were no uh, illegal drugs. Uh, so other than the fact that he used it uh, and he was glad that it was available, even though it made him a, 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 a very, uh, you know, skin and bones, uh, it was really in the last few years of life, but it, it gave him the, the pleasure. So I would think he would favor certainly uh, medical marijuana, which is meant to uh, soothe the pain when you're dying of cancer or some other disease. I suspect he would, he would, he would favor that. But th these kind of questions are always um, problematic. We, we're not really sure unless he's standing here today. In the back. In the back. Way in the back. Way in the back. <clears throat> yeah, I've heard that you talk of the many documents that uh, Franklin signed. And uh, do you think he would be upset at society today the way that, uh, with society today, the way that our government has moved away from and is cheating people out of their rights with unsigned uh, documents and court orders? And... Uh, you know, uh, right now we have a Supreme Court that 90% of the uh, alleged denial orders come out of the Supreme Court with an unsigned rubber stamp. We have courts of appeals that have 90% of the denial orders are unsigned and rubber stamped. Could you, do you think you would be upset at this time about this? <clears throat> There's a great statement uh, in the completed autobiography by Franklin, which I felt was extremely important to put in the uh, the edited volume and that is where he says I'm extremely jealous of the rights of the American people and any infringement on those rights makes my blood boil so that's pretty hard hard terms that's a, another great quote that that we ought to bring up all the time so you can have uh, statements like that that you can use to support what you're saying uh, it's just that it's impossible to say exactly how he would view these things because you, you also have the, the rattlesnake symbol, uh, which you can use to justify the war on terrorism, couldn't you? Because we were stepped on, all right? So we have the right to strike back. So I can see uh, the defenders of, of, of the war on terrorism using that as an example. 
But we really don't know. Uh, we, 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 do, we play this game a lot with all the founding fathers. Whatever our view is, we search and we find something that supports our view from the founding fathers. And I think we have to be very careful that, uh, that we, we uh, I think we need to be circumspect. And I'll give you one other example. Franklin waxes eloquently about inviting strangers to our country in favor of free immigration. No restrictions at all. Come one, come all. Well, that's that made a lot of sense in a country that was relatively uh, poorly populated and they were looking for people to, to fill up the country and, and to make it the great country that it is. But can you say, well, therefore, Franklin is pure libertarian, open border policy today? I don't think you can make that statement because uh, maybe the circumstances are different. Franklin was always adjusting his I've already mentioned how he changed his mind as he got older on his religious views. The war really affected his religious views uh, and, and uh, his attitudes about industry and thrift. There's this delightful story where uh, he's sitting around with his family, his daughter, her husband, and seven grandchildren, and they're playing cards. Uh, he, he liked to play chess, but this is the one example where he's playing cards. And he said, I thought for a minute how, gee, this is a waste of time. And then I let that fleeting thought disappear, and, I, and he says, cut the cards again. Let's play another game. Let me take the prerogative of asking the last question. If I haven't already read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin... Do you think I ought to read that before I read the completed autobiography? Well, you, uh, David, you, you, I think I think you do. Uh, you should read the you should read the story from beginning to end. So uh, pick up a copy of the uh, autobiography. And in fact, uh, I will tell you about another book, not published by Regnery. Maybe it should have been. Uh, but there's a book called Ben Franklin, the Original Entrepreneur, and it's subtitled uh, Franklin's Autobiography for Modern Times. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's been translated into the 21st century, um, and uh, it's, it's the original autobiography in 21st century language. And uh, it's, it's uh, put together by uh, uh, Blaine McCormick, who's at Baylor uh, Business School, and uh, he, he, like me, has regretted the fact that uh, it's, the autobiography is not as popular as it used to be in the 19th century. Um, so uh, what I recommend is you read the autobiography. It's a wonderful uh, story. It's an inspiring story. And I should say regarding my own, and I think it would be worth they, they They belong together. They really do. They belong together. And, um, and, and there's a natural division between these two books. Okay? This, the original autobiography, is the story of Franklin, rags to riches, uh, getting going in life, achieving success and as a, as a printer, as an inventor. And then when he achieves that success, what does he do with his money? He does good. He lives usefully, like he says in his epitaph. And that's what this book is about. This then you shift gears. There's almost a natural division between the two books. It's almost as if Franklin meant to die and not finish it. 
because in finishing it, you see a natural break. And what is this? Going to England, being a national figure, and then an international figure when he goes to Paris and he participates in the greatest revolution of, of mankind. Thank you very much. Out on audio tape, too, so you can listen to it as you're driving along home. Thank you, Mark. I want to thank Mark for being here. We uh, thank a lot of the founders at the Cato Institute. The completed autobiography of Benjamin Franklin is available at Amazon, laissez-faire books, and all fine bookstores. And, of course, it's available right outside, and you can get it signed on your way up to lunch. Thanks for being here. With a rare stamp, Franklin stamp. <laughs>